This is Matt Spiegel, and I can't wait to bring you Season 2 of the PBP, Voices of Baseball. The very best play-by-play voices in the game talk about their craft. It's a job so special that even Joe Buck told us he will probably go back to it. I'm 53, basically 54. I, I think it's too early to say nevers at this point in my life. I think at some point I'll get the itch again. Incredible guests sharing great stories from your favorite teams coming this year. Find us on the Odyssey app or wherever you find podcasts. It's real simple. You know, if you take a person's legs away, they can't run. Bear down, baby. That's it. Bears fans, this is Take the North with your hosts, David Haw and Dan Weeder. We're going to take the North and never give it back. Welcome to the Take the North podcast. I'm David Hoff from the Mullane Haw Show on 670 The Score. Dan Weeder is from the Chicago Tribune at Hallis Hall covering the Bears. And we are dealing with the aftermath of the Bears. Toughest loss of the season, I think, to the Cleveland Browns. 20-17, to 17, blew a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter. The third time a double-digit lead had evaporated in the fourth quarter, Dan. And the ninth loss, I think, hits a little bit differently than the first eight, only because we had talked about the relevance in December, and this was one that the Bears had an opportunity to take a step forward, to stay in the hunt, if you will, and it's an opportunity they squandered. It's an opportunity they squandered. It's an opportunity that they are going to have to process and and live with the results of, because as you mentioned, it, it, it pushes them now into the final three game stretch of the season with less to play for, with less um, natural energy and juice that comes with this finishing stretch. And so they're going to have to find ways to manufacture that in order to get themselves to the finish line of this season in a way that's respectable in a way that's uh, as successful as, as humanly possible. And I, I just, you know, we talked about it late Sunday evening. I think it's a huge test ahead for this team in week 16. And I think that what you do with the final three games and what they represent to different people on the roster and different jobs in the organization, quarterback, head coach, offensive coordinator, general manager, even, but a lot of roster spots still that people are playing for their NFL livelihoods it's it's at that point again, and we've been there before, but I just wonder, as we listen to Matt Eberflus on Monday at Howell's Hall, try to begin to process what's left, how would you describe the tone? What did he have to say? Yeah, I, I, it was probably more notable to hear from two of the players in the locker room, Cole Komet and Tremaine Edmonds, who I think are two guys who are going to be needed this week because those are veteran leaders that that have an ability to – um, create some of that infectious energy within the the locker room and obviously within the practice setting as they return to practice on Wednesday. And you, you're just going to need some of that emotional uh, uplifting to be done here because I, I think all those guys will acknowledge to you that the, 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 the uh, manner of the loss on Sunday, the stakes of the loss on Sunday, all those things drive it home in a way that it just hurts and it's just harder to get back up. Now, like the thing on the Bears' side that's really positive, David, is that they came back after the Broncos loss and they put forth a really, really good performance against the commanders. They came back after that collapse at Ford field and put forth a winning effort in that Monday night game against the Vikings. And so they have tangible evidence that they have the character within this team, the ability to reset, put themselves in a winning mindset and go out and get a win the next week. But as Mark Potash led sort of the line of questioning on Monday, it was, does that emotional dam ever break? You know, how many times do you get knocked down to the mat with an uppercut to the chin and get back up with the same amount of vigor, with the same amount of energy to to push forward? And that's going to be the test they face this week. Like I say, I think those two guys uh, believe in the their own work habits. I think they believe in the 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 
collective unity of the group around them. And and, and that's going to be a big deal. I think with, with Eberflus today on Monday, it was more of a kind of a, almost a, a, I don't want to say a CSI investigation of a lot of the things that went wrong from the fourth and one play that didn't hit when Justin Fields got tripped up short of the line to gain to the Amari Cooper touchdown to the David Njoku play that put the Browns in field goal range. It was more of a X's and O's nuts and bolts. You know, what the hell went wrong on Sunday? Whereas the other guys were left to address the emotional state of the team. So I want to get to the Justin Fields implications and how he played and what he needs to do and where he stands Eventually, we'll probably spend the bulk of this pod talking about that because that's what everyone's talking about. But you mentioned a couple of plays specifically that I think are worth revisiting in light of what Matt Eberflus had to say. Let's start with the fourth and one. I, I yeah. understand that the explanation and the, the options that Eberflus uh, articulated, but I also think that you, know, you have to give the Browns player uh, – the, the the rookie from Northwestern uh, credit for making a play. I mean, he also he tripped up Justin Fields yeah. and get to the sticks, and that that was part of that. I I, I wondered at that point about the field goal. It would have been what a fifty-one yarder, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. Same direction as they were going before halftime. It was yeah, it was somewhere around a fifty-one yarder. And Iffy. But, but, you're up, you know, you're up 17 seven, right? And you're looking to put the finishing touch on that game, and that play comes on the very first snap of the fourth quarter. And so, you know, when I, I'm doing my rewatch on Monday morning, I'm, I'm going, man, like this, this is it right here up by 10 points with a chance to add on that deep in Brown's territory. And you just got to convert on that play, you know, and um, you know, I, the way it was described is it's a, it's a pick play. With right. DJ Moore running a, a a pass route and Justin having the option as he gets outside to either keep it or throw it to DJ Moore if he's if he's open as they expected him to be. Well, the Browns defense reacted in a way the Bears weren't ready for. Uh, Justin chose to keep it. Is athletically gifted as he is. Sometimes a shoestring tackle takes you down, and he and he stumbled. and And I don't know if the wet slick field and anything to do with his inability to get an extra yard and a half out of the dive, but it was, it was bad. You know, it was a bad moment that was followed immediately after by former bear Marquise Goodwin catching a 57 yard pass that, that put the Browns right back in the game. And, and I think that you have to give credit to Cameron Mitchell is the player who made the play on the fourth down. And what that did was it was at 33 yard line. And you're right. I, at the time I remember thinking, well, you got a 10-point lead. This is being aggressive, and I think that we've criticized in the past for not you know, being aggressive when you have a lead. So let's see where this takes them. And I was surprised he didn't make the first down. But what that did was it gave the ball back to the Browns on unleashed fourth-quarter Flacco. I mean, fourth-quarter yeah. Flacco was one of the more dangerous, destructive quarterbacks the Bears have played this year. When you have 212 yards passing in one quarter – I don't know if you go back this season, if I can think of a performance any more dominant or any more productive than what Joe Flacco did to the Bears in the fourth quarter of Sunday in Cleveland. So here's where I was left Monday morning with all this. First of all, I sent out a tweet on Monday morning noting that Joe Flacco's 212 fourth quarter passing yards were more than Justin Fields has had in 26 of his 35 starts in all four quarters. <laughs> How'd that go over? Yeah. How, how do you think it went over? Right. <laughs> but, but like, I mean, not well, but like, I mean, what does that tell you? It, it and, tells and, you everything. And, it, tells you, it tells you everything, Dan. I mean, this is uh, and the other. Continue, yeah. Sorry. And yeah. I was just going to say the other part of it is uh, David, like you, you, 
walk out of there with the understanding and, and we'll get into, I, I've got a lot more kind of numbers to throw at you to, to, to kind of drive this point home. But, but Joe Flacco is 38 years old, was sitting on his couch a month ago. He's playing behind an offensive line in the fourth quarter. That's missing four of its starters. His core group of playmakers does not include Nick Chubb. Who's been out since September. Jerome Ford's the, the lead back. There's a little bit of cream hunt in there. I'll give you a quiz here. Who's the Browns number two receiver right now in current form? Um, Cedric Tillman. <laughs> Cedric Tillman. Okay. Yeah. Obviously the two main uh, weapons in that passing attack are Amari Cooper and David Njoku. And those are really good players, but are they head and shoulders above DJ Moore and Cole Komet? No. Can you name me the, the, we know the head coach, Kevin Stefanski is, is the primary play caller. Can you name me the offensive coordinator of the Browns? The offensive coordinator of the Brown is the guy Kevin Stefanski hired to <laughs> help out a friend of a friend who he promised a favor to. It's Alex Van Pelt. Oh, him too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, and, Alex and, Van Pelt's been around a little while. I mean, he was with the Bills. Did he work for Wani back in the day? We've, we've been talking about him all season because of all the exactly. things he's been doing. Right? Like, some guy. So, so, I mean, my point is, is that... Hey everyone, this is Brett Boone. Would you know it? I've got a podcast going strong in our fourth year. Tune in as I sit down with my friends, some of the biggest names in sports, media, entertainment, for a lot of fun and in-depth conversations. As you know, baseball's been my life. It's been in the family for a long time, but it's a lot more than that here. It's sort of like taking a ride in a golf cart around a beautiful track. Join me every week for multiple episodes on the Brett Boone Podcast, available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. We've talked for years yeah. in the city, in this league, everywhere, that the NFL football games are close in the fourth quarter. And right. it's the teams that have the quarterbacks that consistently make plays happen in the fourth quarter that win consistently and that are, that are the, 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 the teams that sustain success. Right. And he, here we have a, a, a situation in Cleveland that I just described is less than suboptimal, right? Like if, if Justin Fields was playing behind that offensive line and had that group of, of playmakers, the no excuses tour would have never got the buses out of the station to start no, the year. I, I, it would have been every excuse possible. Yeah. Somehow he threw for 212 yards and let a comeback where the Browns outscored the Bears 13 to nothing in the fourth quarter and won a football game that they absolutely had to win. But you, are you ready for the Justin numbers or do you want to retort to that? Well, first? A real quick point on that is that basically what that says to a lot of people who can choose to hear it or not. Most people are covering their ears. No, no, but, I, I, and I'll push back on that in a minute. But I, I, I think there are a lot of people covering their ears. But I think the people that are trying to actively understand what's going on are succeeding. They're just quiet. Okay, actively understanding what's going on is the the stay with the analogy. The, the no excuses tour is, is coming to a close, and and there will be no need for an encore because they're you know the, you're running out. I mean the the, the what, what yesterday those numbers are are damning to Justin Fields. And I think when you talk about what Joe Flacco has done, doing more with less, then you just don't see that in Chicago. You haven't seen that in 35 NFL starts for Justin Fields. And as much as 
you want to pull for the kid, the young man, because he is everything you want in an NFL quarterback intangibly. He is everything you want in a competitor and a leader and a representative of your organization and city. But in an NFL quarterback, I just think we have seen enough. And I'm coming to that conclusion, you know, grudgingly, but I think acceptingly because there's really no other smart conclusion to reach. There are 35 starts. The body of evidence is massive at this point. There are possibility of three more down the stretch of the season. Although I heard you on Monday morning on Molly Haw entertaining the possibility from your producer that they may shut him down and, and, and try to protect the trade value of Justin Fields. Maybe we need to get to that. Going forward, and we'll get to that. <laughs> I want to run that by you. But I, I, Sunday was without question a gotta have it game that included so many gotta have it moments and the Bears didn't have any of it. Four for 18 on third downs. Fourth quarter, they had five possessions end in the fourth quarter, including the one that we mentioned that ended with the fourth and one trip up. They didn't score a single point. Justin Fields' fourth quarter rating this season as a passer is 55.3. For his career, it's 62.4. If you want some context to that, David, I went back over the last eight or nine seasons, and if you want to just get into the top 10 of the league in fourth quarter passer rating, you need to have a rating in the mid to high 90s, sometimes in the low 100s to crack the top 10, just to be a top 10 quarterback in a given season in fourth quarter passer rating. Justin Fields is down at 62.4 for his career, 55.3 for the season. He's three for 23 in his career when taking over a drive with eight minutes or less to go in the game with a chance to tie the game or put the Bears ahead. Three for 23. He has 18 fourth quarter turnovers. He's been sacked 32 times in the fourth quarter. I mean, these are all signs that point you to the conclusion that the quarterback you have isn't equipped to win games when games are there to be won. Sunday was the latest example in a large body of examples. The intelligent conversation is able to process that and understand that as likable as he is, and probably one of the most difficult parts of of being on a beat like this is having to criticize and sometimes harshly criticize people that you truly admire and that you truly like. But the, the, the work is the work, and the body of evidence is the body of evidence. And Ryan Poles is going to look at this through a magnifying glass, through a microscope, and he's going to see the stains on that resume and go, how could I possibly stay the course with a quarterback who so many times has had the game on the line and failed to lead his team to a victory? I think you're exactly right, and I think that's pretty well put. And, and there's really no agenda here. There, there's not really any agenda in trying to displace somebody from a job or or compel, you know, a, an organization to move on from anybody because it is difficult, but the truth sometimes does hurt. And I think you're exactly right. Now we can say that and and you know to anticipate to anticipate counter arguments. Yeah, you know, I mean there are extenuating circumstances. Has has the game plan, has the 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 scheme always done an, uh, a good job of, of taking advantage of his skill set. Probably not. I think we can also agree on that, that Luke Getze has not had a great year himself, especially when it no comes disagreement. to tailoring, you know, some things around Justin Fields' skill set. It took him too long to maybe do that. Maybe it had something to do with that day where he said, you know, he was too robotic or not. That's kind of beside the point. But, yeah, you can accept the fact that coaching could have been better. You can accept the fact that for the first – you know, season and a half, two seasons, he didn't have the adequate rep weaponry around him. Yep. Um, you can accept a lot of things that sound like excuses or sound like contributing factors. But I think that when you look at some of the other things around the NFL, 
Flacco being the latest <laughs> example, it can't always be perfect. It's sitting right in front of you there. 212 passing yards behind a patchwork offensive line with a mediocre group of, of skills players. What or, happens or, or average, that, maybe I'll say the, average just to the, pay proper respect to David and Joel. Yeah. The, the, the quarterback, the quarterback who succeeds in the NFL are the passers who can put the ball where they want on a postage stamp the way that Joe Flacco did on the 51 yarder to Amari Cooper. You throw to a spot and you know the receiver is going to be there. Those are the guys that win. Those are the guys that you want. I don't think that we've seen consistently enough Justin Fields be that guy. He can't really do more with less. If you have to have a perfect situation on the line, around him, in the backfield, for in the play caller, in the booth, for him to succeed, you're going to be waiting forever for something that's never going to arrive. So you are here after 35 starts, and I think that you don't have to make a decision until you make a decision, but I would think that if I were asked today and asked to check a box, mine's, mine's made. I mean, I think you have to move on. You have to be prepared to um, move on, and whatever you do in the next three games, I think – that's this is where we bring to that that next kind of seemingly very unme outside the box kind of idea. But I do wonder if you if you're if you're committed to moving on, then what do you do over the next three games that reflects that? And if sitting Justin Fields out to to preserve his trade value is the best method to do that, I at least would have the conversation. I don't know that I would come to that conclusion, but I would want to hear what other people have to say in my organization. Yeah, I, my knee-jerk reaction to the premise was like, oh, come on, are we doing this? And then the, the, the second thought is, okay, I, I get it. You know, I get it. If, if you have made up your mind. Now, listen, it would be a hard decision to announce publicly because it would tell the, the world that you're not willing to have your mind changed in the final three games and that you're now just protecting a trade asset rather than trying to give a, a, a guy who's given you everything he's had an opportunity to, to finish his argument, you know, and so it'd be a really difficult decision to justify. It would be a harder decision to explain publicly on, on what you're doing. Now, and obviously you could say Justin came out of the Browns game, his shoulder is a little dinged up. You know, we sent him for some tests and I don't think he's going to be able to go this week and we're back to Tyson time. Right. Um, but man, it's just it, it, like I, David, like I, I just, I can't get over the idea that probably the most uncomfortable thing to come out of this entire bear season is coming to the realization that this quarterback who is just so gifted in so many ways isn't the answer. And I think it's just left a lot of people in an uneasy place that causes them to create alternative situations just to make themselves feel better. And I just feel like that's where we've arrived here the week before Christmas. Well, two things. I think the problem with the decision, if we go back to that for a moment, to, to sit Justin Fields, if they were to come to that conclusion, would be not so much with the credibility or, or the public aspect of it as much as it would be with the internal issues you might create in a locker room that yeah. you know, th this is a very popular teammate and leader. And then if they make that decision and they, they act on that, you create maybe some problems that could be lingering into next year with some some key team leaders because a guy like DJ Moore, for example, goes on the Mullen Haw show on Monday morning and says, hey, Justin Fields is great. I don't know why anybody would doubt that. He's better than the two college quarterbacks coming out and we want him to stay. He, he, yeah, so you have to be you have to be careful about that. And and the other thing is that, you know, Dan, one of the reasons I think that people um, who are looking at this objectively, why it is difficult to to conclude you're moving on is because of the popularity of the player, you know, whether it's a fandom that is really rallied around him and has since he arrived, the excitement level was palpable. 
Um, during that yeah. stretch in, in last year, it was, you know, again, they were, they were celebrating the fact that he had arrived and it was premature, but that's a kind of fandom that and hysteria that he created when things were going well. Because it was intoxicating. Those feelings were yeah. intoxicating to people to feel that adrenaline rush. Look, David, there was another one of them on, on Sunday afternoon when the Bears finally finished off that oh-so-difficult one-yard touchdown drive with Fields escaping pressure from Miles Garrett, spinning out, using his athleticism to get around Zadarius Smith, flipping his hips, making a beautiful on-the-money throw to Cole Komet for a touchdown. And, and it, like to me, I said this in the press box after the game, David, that's one of those moments that if you were a casual observer of the Chicago Bears, you're sitting at home monitoring your NFL Sunday and you get a Fox NFL game break and they show you that highlight and you go, my God, this dude's a magician. Like right. who could possibly be wanting to, to turn the page from a, a kid that gifted to make those types of plays in those types of moments. And then you watch the entire body of work for three seasons and three training camps and, and, and all these fourth quarters that go awry. And you just go, I, I like There's just a huge sample size. Now I've teased it last week. I'm doing the, the ranking one through 35 of every start. Justin Fields has made for the Chicago bears. That'll be on Chicago tribune.com at the end of the week. And, and that you just go through them all. And there's just so many yeah buts in there, you know. Yeah, but there was a late backbreaking pick six. Yeah, but the Bears had the the ball with a chance to go tie the game with a field goal, and they stalled out short of midfield. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but and it and it just adds up to to those who have followed it closely as as a, a a clear arrow in the direction that you need to turn. And it's painful. It's truly uncomfortable. And Ryan pulls it, you know, like he's probably got a a very profound admiration of his own for, for who Justin is as a, a kid, as a leader, as a, a locker room hub of energy. And so to, to detach yourself emotionally from that, to make a decision like this is super difficult, but it is where we're at. And, and it's, it's going to be a very, very strange page flip with that. As I said last week, like this is a situation that the city has dreamed about to be sitting on the number one pick in a draft that has been looked forward to for years by people in the league, because they think that there's a, a specific talent in there that can be transcendent and take a, you know, average team and turn them into a perennial championship contender. Like the bears may be sitting feet away from, from their, their ultimate dream house. And yet, packing the the, the the boxes and closing the door on the current house feels well, a little bit hard to do yeah because it's it's melancholy it's it's nostalgic you know it's it's a grief process if you want to go that far that analogy because you know justin fields moving on there's there was an emotional attachment to him being a star on the rise and if they do indeed move on from him as I, I don't think that's as difficult a decision as we're making it out to be. I think we're trying to be sensitive to it. I think we're trying to be objective about it. Uh, but, I, but I do think that from a very sobering reality football perspective, the bottom line when you go in the tape, yeah, that one touchdown, the biggest thing, the quickest impulse people wanted to tweet out and put on social media was, Caleb Williams can't make that play. Drake May can't make that play. You know what? You're right. Probably not. But that's one play, and they took 70 snaps. I think that there's always going to be a couple of those plays like, okay, you can't coach special. You can't defend special. But uh, my sense is that when, you know, if we ever got Ryan Poles or Luke Getze, if people still have <gasps> <his> opinion, <laughs> to, to really like sit down over an hour and look at the cutups of the tape that we see, you know, Justin Fields missing receivers or overthrowing receivers that are open – that would be something that they would they could probably do to make the case that you know what it is time to move on and it's not as difficult of a decision when you see the things that we see when we break things down um forensically if you will 
So I think that it's difficult because of the emotion invested, but I don't think it'd be as hard as we're making it out to be once you start to look at the football evidence. I sat on an airplane and then in my hotel room on Saturday night watching Jared Goff carve up the Broncos and 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 make throws to Josh Reynolds and Khalif Raymond, which were I, hey, it's a one-on-one matchup. I trust my guy. I'm going to put it in a spot where either guy can make a play on the ball and trust that my guy is going to be the guy that makes the play. I watched the game on Sunday, Bears-Browns, live at, at Cleveland Browns Stadium, and there were four or five uh, plays that I marked in my notebook and then rewatched on Monday where you've got – guys down the field, Darnell Mooney and, and DJ Moore in particular, and you just throw the ball in a place where nobody can make a play on it. And you go, well, look, like in the NFL, at some point you have to to offer the opportunity for those guys to make a play, to put the ball where where they can make a play on it because they're paid a lot of money to do so. And, and there's just not a lot of instances of that either. And so, it, uh, look, like you also brought up at the end of last week the, the story that Charles Robinson wrote for Yahoo. Charles Robinson is a... Independent, you know, not attached to the Chicago Bears as a reporter, uh, talking to seven general managers who are uh, uh, not emotionally affected by this decision. They all pointed in the same direction unanimously. And Charles basically said that he talked to, to three more after that story hit uh, print, and and only one of them gave any sort of pushback to the idea of pivoting off of fields and going in a new direction with the quarterback position. And so when 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 you're just grounded and reasonable with with what you're watching and what you're observing uh the conclusion becomes pretty obvious i i like i, I don't know if you want to spend 90 seconds on on the luke getsy topic at all um it might be worth it it might not sure. i don't know I, no i do i do think it's worth it because i think a couple things that and i i want to be consistent you know i, I look at the lack of uh, uh lack of uh a consistent approach maybe to the bears game plans or let, let me say this on sunday when the Bears needed to lean into an identity and when they needed to go into a, a, a road environment against a very good defense and lean on whatever they do well right and then and, and establish that, I, I think that it was exposed just how how little of an, uh, of an identity this team has established over 14 games. And, and, and it disappointed me, um, I guess, looking at it. I, I said going into the game, the Bears were one of two teams in the NFL – who are top five in the league in, in run defense and, and rushing offense. And the running game outside of Justin Fields, I think, will never got a chance to get established against the Browns. I also don't think that there were enough designed runs early on for Justin Fields because I think that there is a correlation between when he starts to run, uh, it, it improves his throwing somehow or seems to be he gets in a rhythm or he feels some confidence. So I don't think that Luke Getzey had a good day. I'm not convinced he's had a great year. That he's doesn't – that, that doesn't really say that he is responsible, though, for the limitations that have been, I think, um, consistent with Justin Fields in the passing game. I think two things are true. I think that Justin Fields has not developed as a passer, and we have just talked about enough examples to convince us that maybe it's time to move on. And I think that Luke Getze has not done a nice job or an effective job of making the most out of his talent and trying to fit maybe a square peg into a round hole earlier in the season and has been inconsistent with his ability to grasp what the Bears offense's offensive strengths are and and maybe uh, lean into those to establish an identity that's still very murky and unclear 14 games into the season. I'll push back very little on that. I will say that I think it's very easy to go photocopy pictures of Luke Betsy's face and 
throw them on dartboard and, and throw darts at them. That's become the knee-jerk reaction in Chicago. It's the comfortable one. It's the one that makes people feel better because it, it allows them to um, distribute blame on the offensive struggles in a way that that, that doesn't feel so uh, uncomfortable, I guess, to, to the previous conversation we had. It's a huge pie chart for why this offense hasn't gotten off the ground. Right. Luke Getze has a huge slice of that pie. Justin Fields has a huge slice of that pie. Last I checked, though, the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame is filled with a lot more quarterbacks than offensive coordinators. And and so uh, ultimately you need your quarterback to be the multiplier in adverse situations. And the quarterback hasn't been. So if my conversation on this topic has been more centered on Justin Fields over the course of the season, there's a reason for it because it's the most important position in the sport. That's been well-established. It's the most important position in the sport in the late stages of close games. That's been well-established. I have never been, you know, look like I, I'm being framed now in the, in the world of uh, public backlash as, as some sort of Luke that's the apologist. That's not what this is. I take exception when people create false realities that, that he's a finger pointing unaccountable leader of an offense when everyone in the building, assistant coaches, players in the locker room um, would tell you that's not the case, that, 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 that there is a, a, a very collective responsibility uh, that Luke takes with, with the way the offense struggles. I think he would be the first to tell you that he hasn't done the job that he has wanted to do here. You just pointed it out. He hasn't had a great season. The quarterback hasn't ascended to the, to the heights we'd, we'd want to ascend to. Um, but it's not taboo to say that. And it's also not, it's also okay to acknowledge that the quarterback you traded up for and drafted in the top 12 picks of a draft is the linchpin of all of this, you know, and, and the one that has to be the, the multiplier. And, and even if you don't have ideal situations with play calling and, and sure, maybe the scheme is limited at times, but Justin has limited himself at times with sure. his own pocket feel with his own pocket presence that the touchdown pass to Joe Flacco <laughs> through to Amari Cooper, you know, like while Justin can make the playoff script off schedule to Cole Komet, I'm not sure he makes that play because it's I, a, I, I it's a throw those. that he wouldn't attempt because he wouldn't, he right. wouldn't trust himself to fit it in that window. He wouldn't have the, calm to be on the move and, and place that ball where it needed to go. And so um, I don't know. I just, I, I, well, like, I'll, I, I'll I, say this, I'll follow up because I, I mean, I, I have been, I don't like being know, vilified for, no, I, for trying to bring that. reason to the conversation. No, and I understand that. that. No. And, and I don't think you should necessarily stand for it, but I, but I think that what happens is that, you know, they're different. Everyone's got a role to play in, in the, in the media in, in a football city, the fans and the villains and the heroes and all the things. I think that, um, and I've been guilty of this with, when it comes to Getzy. When you hear him um, be as candid as he is on a weekly basis in terms of if you ask him a question about, well, whose responsibility was it on this, uh, miss, this botched third down play? He'll tell you. And a lot of times he'll tell you, you know, Justin missed this or Justin did that. And, and it does over time when you hear only that and – you know, I'm, I'm on the air from 5.30 to 10 every day. I'm not at Hallis Hall as often. And and, and that is a, a product of – it's understandable, but, I mean, it's just a product of the of the, the, the job. Um, you do lack a little bit of context. I'll, I'll admit that. So you, you tend to uh, believe that, boy, another Thursday, Luke Getze is not afraid to label a player as a reason why a play didn't work. And far, far less than I think um, – I, I would expect sometimes he's the one who, who falls on the sword and spares the player. That's not candid. That's probably dis that's probably not always true, but like a lot of coaches do it. I think he's more willing to talk openly and honestly about what went wrong in a play. And sometimes that implicates a player 
more directly than many coaches do that. So he leaves an impression. He leaves an impression that Luke Getze, uh, when things aren't going well, is not afraid to blame the player. I I think that has created this perception that he is a, a bus tosser, that he will throw players under the bus and he will protect himself. That's what happens is because so outside of Halasoff and the people who hear him on a regular basis and can probably more accurately or, or uh, depict what he's saying and interpret it, um, guys like, you know, who are on sports talk radio uh, for 20 hours a week tend to maybe latch on to isolated comments and we, we form conclusions quicker because we want them to fit into a certain narrative. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we all need to take responsibility for what we've said and maybe the opinions we've tried to form. Um, so I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I don't think he's a guy that necessarily uh, is a bus tosser, but I also don't think he's a guy that probably willingly accepts uh, responsibility as openly as some other offensive coordinators that I've been around in Chicago. Those narratives get amplified to exaggerated proportions, and then those exaggerated proportions become the reality in a lot of people's minds. And that, that's my job is to kind of push back on that when I am the one that does have the boots on the ground. And I think one of the disconnects here, um, and it, it, it became kind of apparent to me uh, in the conversation I had with Bernstein and Holmes on, on Monday afternoon, is that Luke comes to the podium every Thursday and to be here, you're in a setting where it's, it's just a very comfortable, small gathering, back and forth conversation. I don't think he ever takes a step onto the stage thinking this is lights, camera, action, and I'm speaking to the world here. It's I, I've got I've got 11 people in the seats in front of me, and they're asking me questions about the football game in a specific play, and I'm going to give them uh, the most honest and and nuanced answer I can, and then it gets interpreted outside of here sometimes is bus tossing, as you just said, that, that is, there's, there's no accountability and it's not intended like that. And if you talked to, you know, the, the 20 people that are consistently in this room on a Thursday, I think you'd have 19 of them tell you, no, it's not bus tossing. It's a, it's a coordinator um, speaking honestly and, and giving you explanations that, that should help the outside audience understand why something failed or why a concept didn't work or why a scheme didn't work. And then, you know, when, I, I, so that, that's where I get kind of unnerved because when um, people have a megaphone to create a reality for for an audience, you have to use it very carefully and very responsibly. And I think sometimes it's just, hey, here's the conclusion I drew. I'm going to launch this out to the world and and speak it into existence when there are a lot of different ways to kind of come at it and shine the light on it. Fair enough. I, I do think that when I hear that I understand because I've been on both sides. I've been in that room. I've had relationships with offensive coordinators that frankly might've been, you know, not the most probably were as much personal and professional than they were professional. And I, and I was, I don't want to say compromised, but it's difficult to criticize somebody who you're friends with, or you become, you know, friendly with. And I think that's difficult to do. I'm not saying you're doing that, Dan, but, but I think the one thing the bears historically have to do a better job of, um, and, and pro sports teams in general, you've got to respect the megaphone and you've got to, it's naive to think that when you are amongst friends or a friendlier crowd and you're basically doing a service to the people in the room, you've got to remember that you're speaking to the fan who's listening to all he's going to get is a soundbite on his car on his way to work and on his way home. And that is somebody you have to be sensitive to as well. It's not ideal and it's not necessarily justifying 
what you're talking about. But I think it'd be naive to think that all you're talking to, the only people you're talking to are the ones that whose names you know because they're in the room every week asking you questions to be accountable and to explain plays to them when they don't work. So it's it's a little bit of both. And it's, in most cases, I think that, you know, we – uh, with the megaphone, the people who are responsible for shaping perception a lot of times need to be more responsible in understanding the way these things come together. And and I do think that there's an understanding, and I know you do it because you've been around a long time, but like you're not always going to be able to, I don't want to say protect, but it, you know, you're, it, it's it's tough to be objective with with people you come to respect and have relationships with. That's fine. That That's fine. I like. I just. I think overall that that there there's just. Uh, it just became convenient for people to, to 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 turn that into the firestorm that they wanted to to do down the stretch of the season. And then, um, I there. I mean, I, I don't want to drag this out because I, I I do think that there is a a landscape now in our sports conversation that if you scroll through social media, it's all performative. It's all for, right. uh, it's all for the viral clip that, that can, you know, we can have this hour long podcast and somebody's going to take 90 seconds of it, put it on a, on a thing. And and then, you know, it's Emmanuel Acho thinks that the bears are stupid for doing so-and-so, or, you, you right. know, I mean, there's a thousand right. people out there that right. are pumping that. I don't know. I'm off. I just called Luke Getsy a boss, a bus tosser. That's studs going to cut that clip. And it's yeah, gonna right. Yeah. That'd be yeah. perfect. And you'll get, you'll get a lot of support. You'll get a lot of likes on that. And uh, the bottom line is that like, there's, as we've talked about for weeks, there, there's a, a, the very real potential for very significant change here coming within five weeks, you know, and then we're going to have to reboot with a new set of characters and a new set of people and try to figure out if we can <laughs> gracefully navigate the next leg of this journey. And I do think that like, again, I, I I've said this several times this month that I do think that there, there is a next leg of this journey that is incredibly, incredibly hope filled. I think there's a, 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 a segment of bears fans. That's very fearful that rebooting with a rookie quarterback makes you need to wait another three plus years to get an answer. Well, if you get it right, you could be in the championship hut in year two. You know, Joe Burrow, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, you know, C.J. Stroud is a rookie. There, there's a ton of recent examples of quarterbacks who didn't need a whole long runway before they had themselves capable of playing at a level that pushes your team into uh, championship contention. And you don't even need to be in championship contention anymore. If you're six and eight in the month of December, you're square in the hunt and people feel really good about it. So, <laughs> so, so like how big of a step backwards is, is it going to be if you get that decision right? Yes, there's a risk of getting it wrong and getting it catastrophically wrong there's also a, a opportunity to potentially become one of these teams that goes to the playoffs nine times in 12 years and wins the division five times in seven years and all of a sudden becomes a model for what you try to do in the nfl and you can go all, like how bad were the buffalo bills before josh allen hit the springboard no doubt that's a great example you know and it's and, and the it's cincinnati Bengals. how bad were they Bengals, uh, bills you come up with other examples you know it's not enough either to just kind of get back in the hunt you want to be in a position where over time every year you're the hunted you know you're the team that people want to be like that's why you draft a quarterback with the first overall pick if the panthers can lose out i mean they're trying to screw things up for the bears but i think that that's why you take the big swing is because you could justify and rationalize bringing justin fields back and using the draft capital to build up your roster. And then you might be in a position to win the North and compete, you know, a couple years in a row. But what does that get you? If you want to, if you're as ambitious as Kevin Warren implies, then you're going to think bigger than that. And I think that's what you have to remember that this has got to be about a long 
long-term plan. And frankly, if you do that, you do feel pretty good about the Bears at the end of the season, or you can. They've got a defense that's ready to win. Right, right. They've got an offensive line that's coming together, but you're going to spend offseason, whether it's a draft or, or free agency, you're going to supplement your offensive line. You're going to get another playmaker. And then if you draft a quarterback, all of a sudden, wow, well, okay, I could see this possibly working. And then you gradually start to climb. And if the quarterback is as good as he could be, whoever it is, whether it's May or Williams, then you're talking about sustained success. And that's what it's all about in pro sports. And Ryan Poles experienced it in Kansas City. And, and look, like this roster right now is far sturdier than the 2017 roster was when the Bears drafted Mitch. It's far sturdier than the 2021 roster was when they drafted Justin Fields. You're not going to have to wait that long if everything stays the way it is. This defense, the thing that we haven't really been able to focus on because of what happened in the last six minutes of that game Sunday is – becoming really, really special in a lot of different ways. They're taking the ball over at a clip that we haven't seen since 2018. You've got guys at uh, multiple players at every level of the defense contributing. It's TJ Edwards drilling a receiver that sends the ball squirting to Tremaine Edmonds. It's Tyreek Stevenson, you know, making a beautiful read on a, a zone coverage and picking off a pass at the goal line in a moment that like you absolutely had to have it after sudden change. It's Eddie Jackson getting in the mix and setting you up for a one yard touchdown drive. It's Montez Sweat doing all like there are there are dogs on this defense at every level producing every single week and that isn't going to go away if you rebooted the quarterback position dj moore isn't going to suddenly lose his superpowers if you've got a rookie quarterback throwing him the football you know cole Komet's ascension isn't going to suddenly stop because he, he's got to get chemistry with another quarterback guess what cole's played with like nine starting quarterbacks since he got here four years ago he's going to be able to, to figure it out so i i did i just i think there's a, there's this promise here that is almost concealed because everybody's just so angry at, at, at certain things that are happening right now that they can't see the, the, the sunshine on the other side of the, uh, of the cloud here. And I do think this, and, and I think this is always subject to change every week as a season, as I'd like to say, um, I think that success or that, that uh, optimism is going to be in place, whether Matt Eberflus is here or not, whether Luke Getzey is here or not, and certainly whether Justin Fields is here or not. Um, I might feel differently about the quarterback, but if you change quarterbacks and you change offensive coordinators and you change head coaches, I still think that your roster suggests that you're going to have, you could have the kind of success you just described. That's why I think the only person in the, in the building um, with a big job that should feel secure, I think Ryan Poles is safe. I think that he has done enough to put himself in a position to feel like he can build and add to this because he's got the defense, he's got DJ Moore, uh, he's got the draft capital, and he's made some good decisions there. So, and Montez Sweat was a tremendous acquisition. So I think that you have to look at that and think, yeah, all right, I can see this working, but this is going to be the difficult final three weeks only because what happened Sunday in Cleveland was the death of hope, I think, yeah, in terms yeah. of if anybody had any remaining about this season's outcome. Yeah, I, I told Colleen Kane on Monday afternoon that I'm really eager to just feel the vibes in the locker room on Wednesday and again on Thursday and as we go towards Friday because it's going to be um, kind of notable to see how much natural energy is in there and how much they're having to, to conjure up. And if there's any dip in it, it would be completely understandable because it, it just the, the devastation of that loss Sunday was was very significant. And it is difficult in December after you've been through a lot of dispiriting moments September, 
in October and November, and then again in December to just keep getting yourself up and, and, and recharging. It's the definition of a professional to be able to do it successfully over and over and over again. And we'll just see what the makeup of this team is in that regard. I mean, like I, as I sit here on Monday afternoon, I'm not above picking the Cardinals to win that game on Christmas Eve, because it could just be a concentration blind spot for a team that has just been through a lot this year that it, it it's hard to get through. I don't know if you disagree with that. Especially if Kyler Murray studies. That could be a big factor if he studies the game plan this week. The Cardinals could be dangerous. I, look, anything is possible with this team in the final three games. I, I think you're exactly right that, you know, what happened on Sunday in Cleveland was you lose that game, you might have lost the season. They may not win again. And had you won that game, you'd be talking about, well, can they win out? Because momentum is a funny thing. And I think the Bears lost a lot of it Sunday in Cleveland. Well, and and look, I heard you talking about this on Monday morning as well. What is the what are what are those seats at Soldier Field look like on Sunday afternoon? Right, like we we, we have no idea. We've been there. Who, who the devoted are to, you, to you, turn out? I mean, it's Christmas Eve, you know. So you, this is just... you, you remember the last time I think that we'll, we'll have to do it for the next pod. You remember the, the last time they played on Christmas Eve? I think they were out of it and it was half empty. Well, last year, last year was one of those they played on Christmas Eve last year. They've had a few of those over the years where it, it is it, it's it's wild, you know, uh, and I know certainly I, the fastest stories I write in a lost season are usually on Christmas Eve. Those are usually filed and all right. Nobody's really here to to care about this game. And so I'm going to go uh, spend time with my family in front of a, a fireplace and try to eat Santa's cookies. <laughs> Anything else before we get out of here today, Dan? Boy, I don't know if I got anything left, you know? No, I know. We're good. We're good. That was very therapeutic, cathartic, all those things. Um, Not sure if that's the truth, but no, that's it was valuable. It was valuable. I can't wait for the feedback. Um, so we Yeah, me too. I love the feedback. The feedback the is feedback. my favorite part of the week is the feedback. Uh, you can catch us on your free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You can watch us on 670 Scores YouTube page, and we'll be back on Friday morning with another episode, pre-Christmas episode uh, of the Take the North podcast, looking ahead at the Cardinals game on Christmas Eve. So, for, for Adam Sudzinski and Dan Weeder, I'm David Hall. Thanks for listening to the Take the North Podcast. Very happy to have the smartest audience in Bears podcast history. And so, great talk. See you out there. <laughs>